podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Wagon Wheel with your host, Jared Kimber. So much to talk about. There's cricket and not cricket and all sorts of things, but huge shout out to manscaped.com. Uh, if you want a discount on the lawnmower 4.0 to polish up those testicles of yours, you can put in the code REDINCA, all one word, and you can get 20% off a free worldwide shipping on their products. I use them. They are very good. It was surprisingly good, if I'm being honest. I kind of thought, ah, it'll be okay. Um, but it was immaculate as much as you can ever be immaculate, you know, in that part of your body, I suppose. Also, a big shout out to uh, Bodyline uh, T-shirts. So thank you to them uh, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Uh, if you want to ask the first question on Patreon, there's a level of tier that you can join up as and you can ask questions and we've got a bunch of those to get to. And if Patreon doesn't work for you because of the area that you're in, you can also try uh, Buy Me A Coffee as well. Uh, but you know, we're looking at, in fact, we'll probably be talking about this soon on, on the main Red Anchor podcast, but we're looking at extending the podcast into three. And in order to do that, obviously, we need your support. So if you can um, do us on Patreon, what, what we would probably be looking at doing is adding a third podcast a week, which will be a bit more timely. So obviously, the wagon wheel is can be very timely stuff and also can be stuff from history. And the Red Inca podcast is more just things that we find interesting or that people have written recently that I think you guys are like. And what we really want to do is a third episode there where, you know, something happens in the week of cricket and we get a guest on, we pay them professionally and we pay our producer. He likes to eat apparently. But yeah, so thank you to everyone who has supported us on Patreon and everywhere else. And we will get through the Patreon questions here. Ian says, if England get beaten 5-0, or at least or at least very heavily as it looks likely in this Ashes, how many of this squad are not involved again come the English summer? I think it could be the right time in the cycle for a drastic overhaul. The problem with that, Ian, is I'm not really sure who they get rid of. I mean, I suppose you could say Broad and Anderson. Um, at the moment, Ollie Robertson looks like a better version of Broad, but it's probably fair to say with Ollie Robertson that his fitness is still a concern. And we also don't know how his skills were completely, you know, uh, transplant into other environments. Who else do you get rid of? A butler might leave. They might move on from Butler as well. So I suppose he's another one. Surely you keep Anderson on as long, you know, I mean, his record over the last few years is outstanding. I can't see why you would move on from him. Wokes is an interesting one, but is there a better bowler like Wokes around that England can bring in? I don't know. And then as far as the batters, I kind of feel everyone's had two two bites of the cherry anyway. Uh, we might be up to th three bites of the cherry. Should we go back to, you know, Keaton Jennings again? Um, so I'm not sure it's a drastic overhaul. I just think English cricket is, I think there's a good bunch of bowlers, obviously an incredible bunch of all-rounders, but the batting is is what it is. Um, I don't see... I don't see what can be improved by ripping out a bunch of these guys because I think they've tried that before and they end up with the same guys back in the team. Nort says, uh, Jared, please explain what the likes of Jake Libby, Joe Clark, and Liam Livingston were not part of Chris Silverwood's Ashes plans. If I'm not mistaken, Nort, did they not all average south of 40? It's the same problem again, isn't it? I, I mean, I'm not saying you don't eventually give them a go. Um, and, um, you know, chances are that those three guys might all get a go. But it's the same problem again. These are not consistent high-level run scorers in first-class cricket. And you're hoping that when they get to test cricket, they'll be able to overcome it in what is increasingly the toughest era of test cricket um, for batters in a long time. 
I just don't see how they handle it. But, uh, you know, I'd be happy to be proved wrong. Uh, Ian Whitfield, so it was Ian Price before, but Ian Whitfield says, cricket seems to be dying in England, both in terms of the number of people watching and the number of people playing. Knock-on effect of this is the overall drop in the quality of players at the county level and test level. Uh, what do you think the ECB could do to address this? And do you think the ECB will take any action? Well, that's what the 100 was. <laughs> that's what they spend all that money on the 100 was. They know that, well, geez, you could say for maybe 40 years, ECB or TCCB have, you know, not really done anything. They, they ran this game like it was a private members club. And the problem with private members club is if you don't keep getting people to join, eventually people just kind of die off. And I think that's been the problem with English cricket. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the problem with English cricket level at the moment. I mean, when you say that there's a, an overall drop in the quality of players at county level and test level, what about white ball cricket? Are they not all the same levels of players? And England's completely dominated both levels of white ball cricket. Uh, for a long period of time now. So uh, I find it hard to say that there's a drop in, in talent. What I would say is that England is not getting the most out of the talent in their country because basically only a couple of groups of people within the country play. And I think that's what the 100 was. That that was the, the main idea of it anyway, other than making a shitload of money, obviously. Uh, Ross says, you spoke last time about how Nathan Lyon was set up to bowl in Australian conditions, but overseas finger spinners weren't. Uh, could you talk some more about what Lion does that makes him so effective there and why others can't adjust to replicate when in Australia? Uh, it's hard for me to do that at the moment, Ross, because my arm's still a little bit bent. But if you watch the YouTube of this, essentially, spinner's ball around the ball, all right? So there's always a little bit of natural overspin on the ball, but essentially you're coming around the ball because obviously you're trying to get it to deviate off the pitch. If you're an Australian finger spinner specifically, but even Australian wrist spinners do this a little bit, they generally come over the ball a little bit more because you can control um, teams uh, with the the extra bounce. And so a little bit of overspin actually helps. So to be a successful Australian spinner in Australia, um, especially consistently, you, you have to put a, an amount of overspin over the ball. Uh, if you see... Um, um, Somerville also does this from New Zealand because he was obviously trained uh, in Australia as well. Uh, and, and so what they're doing is they're putting a little bit more overspin on the ball. And it helps in Australia, probably might help in South Africa. I, I haven't heard as many South African spinners talk about it. Uh, maybe their pitches are a little bit different and because sometimes they're slower than Australian wickets. So maybe uh, you get a bit more purchase off the surface sideways. But that's essentially what Nathan Lyon does. And, of course, that's brilliant in the first innings and when the pitch has good bounce in it. As the pitch goes on, realistically, what you want to be able to do is get more side spin on the ball. And I, I think Nathan Lyon's a perfect example of showing it's not particularly easy to go from overspin to side spin unless you're someone like Ashwin who, you know, can do anything from ball to ball. But most most international players can't do that. You know, you see the, the really good bowler bowls three outswingers in a row, goes for the inswinger and misses leg stump. You know, Tim Southey does that. It tells you that when you're tinkering with your action in that way, what can go wrong with it? And I think that's probably fair enough there. Uh, who have we got here? Chris Defar. was thinking during the last test about how different the Australian crowd was to an English one. If England were at home and in that position, it's very rowdy, loud, and a lot of singing. For two similar countries, I was surprised at how quiet Aussies were. I find it funny how Australians get labelled as very intimidating. Well, Christopher, they used to throw piss on people in Australian crowds and golf balls at people. I don't think that's something that English crowds have done. I think over the last 20 years, Australian crowds, because the authorities have cracked down on them. I've, yeah, I've gone from being very intimidating to not being so intimidating. Um, when was it? Uh, Ian O'Brien and Jonathan Trott would probably disagree with that with some of the treatment. Of, um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Muhammad Siraj is another one. He got racial treatment. Uh, Ian O'Brien got uh, homophobic treatment. Um, 
Jonathan Trott, what did they say to him? Your mum's got vagina rot. Uh, these are things you're probably not getting in England grounds, to be fair. And that's generally how it's always worked in Australia. It's not like a whole crowd cheering. The only place that ever really happened was the MCG with, you know, Hadley's a wanker, Virat is a wanker. Um, that's not something that Australian crowds do because that's an English football thing, right? So it doesn't really trans. That's not what Australian football crowds do. Uh, generally what happens, you, you know, is, you know, people get abused uh, when they go out towards the boundary. My first test match, the first one of the first things I ever saw in a, te- in a test arena was an Australian fan hit a Pakistani fielder in the head with a flag when he picked up a ball. Again, not the sorts of things you see in England. So I think that's how Australian crowds are intimidating and the general level of abuse you get. Um, it's probably more similar to what you get in South Africa when you're near the boundary, when you, you know, you're going um, up the race. That's when, <laughs> that's when you hear from the crowds, whereas English crowds are more chanting crowds. I think that's probably fair. Sandeep says, for India's Boxing Day Test Match versus South Africa, who do you think the number five should be? I listened to your podcast from Mahane's overseas records. His past record in South Africa is very good as well. Should that be overlooked? And Travis I asked to be played at number five, given his recent success in Indian conditions. I think this is really interesting, actually, Sandeep, because I don't think there's a right answer about this. I think the conservative thing is to go with Rahane, and that may not work, obviously. Um, and, you know, then you're in a situation where you have to go to Shreyas I anyway. But the other thing is that Shreyas I may, may not be able to handle South African conditions. You know, throwing him in, he just hasn't played outside of India enough. It's phenomenal how little he's played outside of India. Considering what a talent he is, it's—I don't want to say it's mismanagement from, but from the BCCI because I think some of it was probably COVID, um, but it hasn't worked. Uh, so South Africa is a particularly difficult place to go and bat. Uh, so I think he will be tested. I think if it was me, I probably—I probably would have always taken Arane in the squad, but I probably would have gone with one of the younger players first, uh, and then seen how that that has gone and and you know i'd say to rahana you, look you're not here to play you're here almost as a coach and a mentor um and if something goes wrong we'll bring you in which i think is perfectly acceptable to say to someone at his level you know with his career and also how he's been playing in the last little while partha says do you believe joe root would have been better luck with his testicles had he been a manscaped customer did he pay the price for his careless disregard of this swimsuit region do you think this incident Actually, two incidents is a clarion call for all of us to give Manscaped to try. Look, I, I can't tell you whether Joe Root would have been better off if he used Manscaped, but Joe Root would have been better off if he used Manscaped. 20% off if you used the code RedInca. Um, uh, my first ever cricket game, Partha. I said, not even my first ever cricket game, my first ever net session. So it was actually probably after I first played my first game. I must have been about seven. Went in, uh, I think my dad just thought, oh, you know, he's a cricket kid, he knows cricket, but no one told me about the box. Went in, first ball, missed it, hit me in the balls. It was the only time I ever faced a cricket ball without a box. Uh, I have not forgotten that pain. Uh, Kumar says, I've been watching John Boy, a baseball aficionado and podcaster who breaks down baseball videos. I tries to educate his followers on the quirks of the game. Yeah, I think it was John Boy the guy who, was he, did he come to fame by um, working out the Houston Astros? Um, I think that was the period where John Boy got famous. Anyway, uh, he's been taking down the rules and the catches in the BBL as well uh, as New Zealand T20. Um, and the comments on their breakdowns are pretty positive too. So do you think this sort of sudden attention with the coverage of amazing people like Peter Delapena will help cricket beyond that of the expat community? Look, I've been saying for a long time that I think when I started writing in cricket, it was clear that American audiences, American sort of hipster sports audiences were going towards soccer and football. And straight away, I thought, well, there's absolutely no reason why that won't happen with cricket. It's just going to take its time. Um, I've had a lot of really cool discussions, uh, you know, obviously with um, 
you know, I've been quoted in a couple of baseball articles of recent times. Um, I haven't, I haven't talked to John Boy, but you know, I've talked to some of the other guys. Um, talked to some of the guys from uh, Driveline Baseball. Um, uh, obviously, someone like Wright Thompson is a huge cricket fan. So I do think it's starting to change a little bit. I mean, a, a perfect one for you. I don't know how much of an American sports fan you are, but Daryl Morey follows me and a couple of other cricket people now. You know, a couple of years ago, we weren't being followed by people like that in American sports at all. And for those who don't know, Daryl Morey is the basically like basketball's Billy Bean, I suppose. He runs the Sloan um, Conference, uh, a sports science conference. Uh, so I do think it is starting to change. I think within the next five years, SB Nation, The Athletic, Locked On, Ringer, New York Times, all those sorts of places will have regular cricket content, uh, you know, uh, and I think things will start to move forward, certainly uh, when it comes to that sort of stuff. And I think John Boy's up. I think he would be one of the most public people um, when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, but I do, yeah, I do think that's that's starting to change. But I always, I always thought it was inevitable, uh, if we're being honest. Uh, Chris says, stealing this from the Wisdom Podcast, but since 2005, do England actually have a better overseas overall record in the Ashes? Yes, they've lost 4-0 and 5-0 twice, but they won one away series and Australia haven't won any in England. Yeah, obviously Australia retained the Ashes in England, but that was disappointing. Um, I think it's probably, f- if the aim is to win series, then probably England have done better. I think that's probably fair, but uh, if the aim is to win consistently, then it's probably not. Duncan says, you're a cricket commentator. Who are your favourite cricket commentators and why? And who are your least favourite? Uh, I was personally quite surprised how good Shane Watson was. I mean, uh, Shane Watson was an absolutely phenomenal cricket commentator in the World Cup. I was shocked with how good he was. And going in, if you told me that, you know, him and Dale Stane were commentating, I would have thought Dale Stane would have been the standout commentator. And Dale Stane just wasn't that good, um, as much as I love Dale Stane. But Shane, uh, Shane Watson was incredible. Uh, who do, who um you know I love Fazi I love Neil Manthorpe I love uh, Dan Norcross uh, Tim Lane from Australia is still one of my all time favourites um of the TV guys I'm you know big fan of Ian Bishop and uh, Simon Dool I think has become an outstanding commentator um over the last maybe two or three years um uh, those are probably some of my uh, favourite oh you know I, I don't mind Nasser and, and and Athers as well I think they're really good at what they do um least favourite. Look, the least favourite to me, the people who, you know, I'm not going to name them um, because I don't want them to send me messages on Twitter, but they're the ones who turn up and don't do the work. Right? If, if you if you don't know who the players are and you haven't done the research, uh, it's pathetic, really. This is, if you're being paid to do this job, do the work. And nothing annoys me more than people who don't do that. Uh, and I've worked with them. I've worked against them. It was one thing that when we started TalkSport that was we pushed everyone on. You can't just turn up and not know cricket. And if that's the case, it's not good enough. Um, if you haven't been watching, if you haven't been paying attention. And so we really do, that's what we tried to do at TalkSport. And if I was involved in any other commentary service, that's what I'd be trying to do as well. And Martin says, how much does England's obsession with the Ashes not only harm the rest of uh, their test cricket, but also their chances in a way to Ashes series? It seems that they're planned and planned and that most of their mistakes in the series have been an obsession with their plans in the face of changing circumstances. How much does their obsession with the Ashes hurt them? Yeah, I think it hurts both countries. I don't think it hurts them in the Ashes. What's hurt them in the Ashes is that, you know, they're two bowlers down. They would have wanted to come with Stone and Jofra. They are five batters down. I mean, they don't have anyone who can bat. So they've probably tried to overthink it when realistically they don't have the talent to be able to do that. 
But that's kind of what sports teams do at a certain point. They believe when no one else does. So if it had come off for them, that's what they would be pointing to. And when it hasn't come off for them, you know, it's looked pretty bad. But realistically, I don't think, um, I, I really don't think that England, uh, look, I think that the, the obsession with the Ashes for both countries holds both of them back. I remember someone in Indian cricket saying to me a few years ago, that does Australia and England not realise that if they don't plan to play everyone, like they'll never dominate again? And I think that's a very, very fair point. Um, and I think a lot of people in Australian cricket believe that, but a lot of other people have that beat England mentality um, that that doesn't try translate to how modern cricket is. Uh, I think in England's case, though, <laughs> I think they planned quite well. A couple of key injuries certainly held them back. And then on top of that, they can't bat. You can have all the plans you want in the world, Martin. If you can't bat, you can't bat. So thank you to everyone on Patreon. As I said, we are looking at starting another podcast in the future. So if you can support us on Patreon, uh, that will make it easier for us. Uh, so thank you to everyone there. And let's get to the questions. Actually, Kyle's just said something about John Boy. And John Boy's been the most high-profile cricket fan I've seen. If US cricket was smart, they'd hire him to commentate a Major League cricket or US cricket matches. Do you know, I've been talking to Major League cricket, Kyle. And I'll, I'll put that to them, actually. I think that's a really good idea. All right. Keshuv, you're on the air. Jared, can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? Hi. Uh, so my question is uh, regarding two players who have very contrasting uh, records when it comes to, you know, first class and uh, international cricket. So Oli Pope, uh, you know, he mm-hmm. averaged like 60 before he made his debut and now he's into 50s and at first class level. But uh, internationally, he's I think he's now not even 30. I think he's 29. But when you talk about uh, somebody like uh, Labushain, so he was averaging mid-30s at best, I think, and uh, internationally he's gone past 60 uh, now. So uh, what is it that really uh, differentiates these guys? Do you think the quality of bowling that Oli Pope uh, got in domestic level was not as good as uh, Labushain would have got? Or it's just that... Well, Labushain made most of his runs domestically in county cricket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all true. So, so it would be hard to argue that. Um, look, I think the more we know about Ollie Pope, the more we know he's a brilliant player of fast bowling on fast pitches. Um, obviously, he did great in South Africa. He's done very well at the Oval. Uh, I don't know what his overall average of first-class cricket outside of the Oval is, but I don't think it's that far away from what Labuschagne's average was, right? And so I think that certainly plays a very big part of it. I think Labuschagne is also a complete outlier in that – I don't think he would continue to average what he's averaging at the moment. I think there will be a big drop-off eventually, um, but he might still be a very, very quality player. But he clearly has a more all-round game than Oli Pope does. I think that both of the players were brought into the team slightly before they were ready. Lavashane then had time after he got test cricket to think about what was working and what wasn't working. And I think Oli Pope's probably been on a bit of a whirlwind where he hasn't been away from the team long enough to really improve on what he can do. Uh, this might sound controversial, but on pure batting talent, I don't think there's much between them. But I think that Lubbershane is a more rounded batting talent, which is very important in Test cricket because in Test cricket, it's one of the few places where you do face so much more. I think it's 40% spin bowling and 60% seam bowling. So you have to be a well-rounded cricketer to make runs consistently. Uh, where that's not always the case. You know, if you, if you play f- first-class cricket in Sri Lanka, you don't really have to be that good against pace bowling. Um, and if, you, you know, if you're playing first-class cricket in England, you don't have to be that good against spin bowling. So I think those things definitely pay, play a part. 
I also think there's a bit of, um, n- not fluke about Lover Shane's, but, but fluke in the fact that he's averaging whatever it is, 63 or 64 um, in a short period of time. Uh, we have seen players do that before, and it almost always uh, levels out. Um, and I have no reason to believe, I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, but he went back to counter cricket this year and didn't make any runs. Uh, if that had happened in test cricket, for instance, his average would have plummeted. And so he hasn't had that in test cricket just yet. Plus, there's also the fact that I think he's had a lot of drops and he's obviously played the majority of his cricket at home. Uh, all these things certainly help him. But yeah, I think I think a lot of it is to do with um, uh, a, a little bit of luck, but also I think that Labuschagne is just a much more rounded player. Also, and this is a really important thing, like when you enter test cricket, if Oli Pope had entered test cricket six or seven years ago, and on the sorts of pitches that we had then, I think he would have absolutely blitzed. Like it looked like he was going to when he came into test matches. If you remember, if you think back to how he looked at the start, ever, that's what everyone thought. I was one of the few people that had a cautionary um, glance at him because I was like, I don't know about this spin, everyone. And everyone's like, shut up. He looks pretty. And I think if he came in a couple of years ago, I think it would be slightly different. But when he came in, it has been harder to play pace bowling, which is his speciality. Also, on top of that, he then had two very, you know, he also had the, you know, the conditions that obviously England had to play um, in Asia, uh, which he was never going to be um, ready for. But I think maybe, I, I think maybe Amana spent more time working on his game to make it test level standard because he had to, because his record wasn't particularly good. And I think Oli Pope was like, well, I'm averaging 60. Why would I need to change anything? How much do you think uh, it has to do with the mental resolve? Because there are a lot of players we have seen uh, over the years who are greats at first-class level but cannot cope up with the international pressure. Do you think Oli Pope is one of them? No. No. I I don't really believe in that stuff that much. I I mean, there there are certainly players. There are players who... if If you have all the test match qualities to be able to translate to make runs at the test match level... You're given a proper run, you play at home in a way, and you play for a 25 to 30 test match period. I think you will eventually work out test match batting. And maybe the best way to work that out is a lot of the New Zealand records where they're thrown in way too young. They spend a lot lot of time trying to work out the game and then they end up being very good players. The whole mental thing, there aren't many players who make it to test cricket that aren't on some level mentally strong. What generally happens is they throw players in before they know what their game is. Right? And I think Oli Pope is a perfect example of he didn't really know how to score against spinners in first-class cricket. The record's pretty clear on that, right? So it didn't get him out a lot, but it was quite clear that he didn't know how to score against it. Um, and when you're in test match cricket, you have to be able to score against it because you have to get off strike. And when he tries to get off strike, his shots are risky in test cricket. So the whole mental thing, honestly, mate, I think it's just, it's usually just code for we don't know how to fix this person because they've got, technical problems right there there are certainly players who don't try as hard as other players there are certainly players who don't work as hard there are a lot of players who play cricket because they're very good at playing cricket right and you see this you know the the best sport for this is always basketball there's a lot of guys who play professional basketball because they're over six foot eight right but they don't necessarily like playing basketball and they don't necessarily want to do the work um, and so a lot of people, when they get to the NBA, kind of stop because they've got their big payday and they don't need to to, to do the, anything more to be driven. That sort of stuff happens. But this whole thing about mental toughness. Just it's, uh, it's one, last, one last follow-up. Uh, do you think number six for Oli Pope is the right place to bat? Uh, well, I mean, he's not making any runs at number six. I don't think moving him anywhere else in the, in the order is going to particularly help him. 
like anywhere else is going to be harder. So um, I can't see why how you would move him up the order. Because number six has to, you know, deal with uh, the old ball and the new ball as well at the 80 over mark. So maybe, you know. Hey, mate, if he gets the 80 over mark, he's done well. They, they aren't making it to the 80 over mark very often. Uh, no, number six, no. Number six is way easier than... Okay, here's the best way of putting it. If he bats at number four, he's probably going to have to bat sometime between the 15th and the 30th over, right? So he is actually going to have to face genuinely a ball that is probably still doing something. If he comes in at number six, he's probably coming in any time between the 40th and the 60th over, which means by the time he reaches the new ball, he should be settled and should be used to it. That's a much easier. There is no batter in the world that would rather bat, you know, um, <laughs> the, the, number six is the cruisy position. That's why we put the all-rounders there, all right? It's the easiest spot to bat. Thanks for your question. Ekanth, you there? Uh, hi. How can I help you? So I wanted to know about uh, cricket, cricket content on YouTube and, and the internet. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of uh, generic and specific. You can look at it as generic and specific content. If you look at it in that in that lens, like uh, what do you make of it? Like where do you think it's going? And uh, well, firstly, I'm not really sure no, what you mean by generic and specific. So can you tell me what you mean? So say with the uh, specific something like you do, where you take one theme and you kind of break it down in different ways, and uh, specific stuff like match reports or uh, even interviews and stuff like that. Even some of the stuff that players do, like Pat Cummins or Ashwin, that covers both the things. And then there's the audience themselves, like some are made for specific audiences, like uh, maybe the cricket nerds or, uh, you know, the general public. And then the general public, uh, that's where the generic content also goes. So where do you think the landscape is in? Uh, how different do you think it's from like the broadcast stuff? Is it better in any way? To be honest, I mean, most of the stuff that I see on YouTube is mine. Um, uh, I don't think what I'm making is broadcast level stuff. I think maybe the content is better than some of the broadcast stuff, but certainly not the production values. I think it's still very early on. I think the biggest YouTube channels are still, you know, former player yells at clouds. Um, you know, shout out to Shell Bakhtar, um, there. Um, I think that there's, uh, because I don't think that many people have worked out ways to make money for, from it. What people are trying to do is just chase hits. So one of the funny things I always get is, um, oh, you're only doing this for the Indian audience. And it's like, I'm not, I, A, I've never done anything for an Indian audience. I'm not, not particular. I'm not, you know, I, Indian audience usually comes with a bunch of bucks um, who don't get half the jokes and get angry at everything. So I don't want an Indian audience to begin with. I want a cricket audience. Uh, I don't really care where you're from, if you're from Mozambique or Mumbai. Um and secondly, I, th I think, though, that because the Indian audience specifically, and Pakistan audience to a certain degree as well, bring so many hits, people end up chasing that. So there's a lot of content that is absolute garbage on Cricket YouTube because it is put up specifically to, you know, oh, you know, um, someone has said this in Indian cricket, and I'm now going to say the opposite of this. And now that person has said this, and I'm going to say the opposite of what they have said. And you end up chasing your tail. So there's a lot of that. And I think that, Ultimately, that's absolutely, it's useless. Um, it's painful. Um, and I think that YouTube, what YouTube really allows for you to do is to make content that you can't make anywhere else. That's really bad. That's just TV anchor stuff, isn't it? Like you could get paid just as much to go on and be a TV anchor and yell those sorts of things. So where I sort of see YouTube is the ability to, I mean, that, you know, John Boy's obviously been mentioned on this podcast, but, you know, uh, there's Foolish Baseball, 
Uh, there's everything that Secret Base Crew are doing at SB Nation. Um, you know, there's some really, really good um, TIFO football um, sort of stuff out there. What I've seen is what can what can we make that we won't be able to make anywhere else? So even Crick Info are not, they're a bit 50-50 on my videos whether they want to commit to them. But realistically, if I make stuff like that and Crick Rispin makes stuff like that and uh, Cricket with Ash makes stuff like that and all these different sorts of flighted, uh, flighted leggy, all these sorts of different people start to make that kind of content. Um, you know, I, I can't remember. Oh God, I've forgotten which Twitter handle it was, and I should remember. But the the guy who does all the um, the ball by ball guy. No, no, no. There's a guy who does all the um, uh, he does the T20 breakdowns that you can buy um with all the information packs. And he was doing videos at one stage, and it was just him talking through an Excel spreadsheet. And you learn more. Yeah, he sorry. On sheets and how to extract data from Cricket and stuff like that, right? No, I think that's a different guy. But yeah, yeah. I mean. My point is, what you're talking about, there's a bunch of these guys out there now, um, and I think there's more technology coming through that helps people, and so there will be more of that. But I think that also a lot of this is, it also comes down to the kind of content that people are willing to pay for. And at the moment, you know, even though my channel's bigger than Steve Harmison's channel, he's probably more chance of getting a, a um, an advertiser than I am because he's Steve Harmison, right? And the same with, with Hoggy. Hoggy has more subscribers than me, but I think most of my videos get more views. But he's still Brad Hogg, so he's still going to get, you know, people are going to want to work with him. And I think what really needs to happen is, you know, for, we need to really have our, our own um, sort of awakening on YouTube, and there needs to be lots of different people making all different kinds of content, not just content like me and Crick Rispin and Cricket with Ash, but all different kinds of smart content. Because I think that in the future we can almost grow our own um area there which is what the bloggers did back in the day you know that's the the environment i came through was you know um are you a left arm um uh, chinaman uh king cricket uh myself um history of cricket um you know all these uh, eye on cricket all these different blogs all came through together and most of us ended up you know writing professionally or semi-professionally at times and some of us have obviously gone on to be writers and and done other things and it all came from it's easier to do it when it's a bunch of different people at the moment. Now that's different for me because I come from a bit of a background, uh, you know, where people know who I am, but in general, what you need is you need a groundswell. It's very hard to do these things on your own. So if you've got, if, if one of these people is doing these videos, it's very hard for there to be a whole movement around them um, because they don't really create anything where, you know, they don't create a, a rush. Whereas if there are about five, six, seven, eight people doing this, well, eventually someone will get hired by CrickBuzz and someone will get hired by CrickInfo and someone's channel will get really big. And, you know, th those sorts of things that you you have seen in, you know, with American sports um, that has already happened and starting to happen with football and then teams get want to get involved with you and all those sorts of things. That's when I think the cricket YouTube space will get quite big. But at the moment, I think there's too many people chasing the latest Indian slash Pakistani news stories. And I think it's a much better space than that. And there's a lot more you can do with it. But I understand why those people are chasing those numbers. They look really good. But, you know, I'd rather spend three days making a video about Nathan Lyon in the fourth innings because I think that in two years' time, that's still going to be a video worth watching. And I think if you find my channel in a year's time, you're going to be like, oh, my God, I can go back through all of this stuff, whereas most of the other video channels don't have that. And that's what I'm trying to create is, like, you know, a, uh, 
something slightly different to everyone else. But, you know, there's lots of very talented people coming through on the cricket YouTube space up um, as far as I'm aware, you know, Caribbean cricketer there now. Um, obviously, you know, uh, the final word and the great cricketer, uh, Mel and Barata there, you know, some really good people coming through. But, I, you know, uh, Jamie Alter, although is he... I don't know if he just does cricket stuff, but there's certainly people coming through and I think it's a really interesting space. But what I would say to people is like, don't try and create what other people are trying to create, work out what you are best at and sort of invest your time and your energy in that. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, the hits will come regardless. And I think people get quite excited, you know, uh, at, oh, I've got a famous person on my channel and I've got 80,000 views. And so that's great. Do you know how hard it is to consistently get famous people on your channels? <laughs> it's so hard. Um, and so what's much better is if you can create your own interesting content and do it from there. And that's, I think, the same for anyone. And one question about V Cricket. Like, uh, from the, uh, you told, like, they kind of stumbled down into that. Like, they created backyard videos and then they did quizzes and stuff like that. Now... I think they've done a, co a commentary stint in county cricket and they have a I don't think that there's a huge following for them, but it's decent. Well, it's a huge following on YouTube, isn't it? Don't they have a few hundred thousand followers on YouTube? Uh, I think for V Cricket, they have it. For more V Cricket, where they do quizzes, it's a bit lower. <laughs> but yeah, uh, by the way, you'd be brilliant at those quizzes, some of those quizzes. <laughs> Uh, look, what we cricket do, there's also, I don't know if you're on TikTok, but there's dealt with cricket on TikTok. Um, they're really good as well. That's what I mean. There's some really interesting people coming through, uh, you know, cricket with Ash on, on Instagram, um, you know, Crick Rispin, Flighted Leggy. There's a lot of really interesting people coming through who are looking at this space differently. Uh, Cameron um, Ponsonby did, um, uh, what did he, he did like a video essay as well. There, there, is, there are people starting to make more and more of this sort of interesting content. And I think that, Cricket was ahead of the curve when it came to writing books and then probably because of that fell behind the rest of the world when it came to 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 media. And I think a lot of other sports are a long way ahead of us for the sort of creative content that they have. And a lot of our content is still, what has Michael Vaughan said? And, like, I just don't care. But, yeah, so do you think with amateurs who are trying to come in, like maybe they're trying to create videos, but they're kind of like how we cricket did. You know, like when you take a... An analogy of say uh, food content or stand up, you know, uh, there are podcasts like, like I think uh, for comedy, this is a podcast called uh, Let's Talk About Sets, where they bring in comedians and they kind of uh, ask them to break everything down. So, mm -hmm. do you think there are like what kind of content do you think uh, can bring an influx of new audiences? All content, all content can. The, the, the problem isn't. The fans, the fans have only been given like one kind of cricket content, which was generally a newspaper writer from that country telling them who's about to be dropped and who's not about to be dropped. Right? That's what cricket fans have been trained on. But I like, I mean, you talk about amateurs. What do you think I was? Right? I was an amateur. I just started as a blogger. I never worked for a newspaper. I never worked for a website. I literally just started writing in my lounge room and doing stuff. And here I am. How many years later? 14 years, almost 15 years later, right? It, it is more than possible to do that. But you need sustainable ideas, you need creativity, and you need to come up with, and you need to put time into it, right? And a lot of people don't. And if they're not successful within the first couple of weeks, they give up. And um, realistically, you're probably not going to be successful. It took me five years to get a contract with Cricket Info. I've still never had an actual job in cricket. 
I've only ever had contract work. Never been employed by anyone in cricket 15 years in, right? It's a tough industry to break into, but you can do stuff. And I think We Cricket is a perfect example of that. Um, Stahal is another one uh, with her channel. Uh, not, not that she's an amateur, but, you know, you find your niche and you, and you drill down on it. It is possible. People don't want to do the work. That's been my, you know, I remember being asked once, um, how do you feel when someone tries everything they can to break into this industry and they don't break into it? And I was like, well, I'll tell you when I find that person, right? Because anyone I've ever seen who's tried everything they do to break into this industry has broken into this industry. They might not always ended up with the dream job they wanted. They might end up doing, you know, sending tweets for a county cricket team. They've all broken into the industry though, because if you work hard enough and you try hard enough uh, and you stick around, eventually someone gives you a job doing something. Um, and most people don't do it because they don't have instant success and because it's tough and because you don't make any money. So, you know, you, you need to be incredibly lucky or, you know, be willing to live off. Uh, when I started Cricket With Balls, I was making $320 a fortnight in Australia. Um, so what's that? About 160 quid a week. Uh, and when you think of rent and food and everything else, it was like, it was almost impossible. But, I was like, I think this is a real chance for me. So I'm just going to keep going and see how it went. All right. And eventually it did get better. And I started to get advertisers and things started to change, but it took a while and I had to do a lot of work. I probably had to write close to a million words before anyone started to realistically pay me for them. Um, people don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and what they want to do is they want to do the video. I was like, oh, we just did a video about Virat Kohli and it got a million, uh, got a million views. So that's great. We'll do another one about Virat Kohli. And then we'll do another one about Virat Kohli. And then about five into Virat Kohli, it's like, now what do we do? Right? And that's the problem. The problem isn't getting attention. You can get attention fairly easily in short bursts. The, the people who have viral hits very rarely do particularly well. It's backing it up that is the tougher thing. Having the viral hit is something. Uh, my career is not, I've, I've actually had very few viral hits, but consistently I can drag people to pages to watch things, to listen to things, um, you know, uh, and, and to read things. And that's essentially the biggest skill that you need to have. And that's the same that I would tell any of these YouTubers. Uh, thanks for your question, mate. All right. Jimmy, you there? Hi, Jared. All right. This time, Jimmy, you're going to ask your question and then you're going to allow me to answer it. And then we could talk. But let me complete it. Said, didn't, you didn't quite finish. You didn't even let me answer the answer bit. Ask your question. Go. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about uh, the treatment of England to this uh, young spinners. I mean, the treatment they meted out to Dombez and uh, Jack is absolutely appalling. And if they go back to include them in the team, why are they giving chances to drive like Mason Crane and uh, Pat, uh, Parkinson and uh, Birdie? I mean, Mason Crane, were the guys. Mason Crane got the chance in 2017 Ashes. I think he was very young at that time and he never got another mm -hmm. chance. What's the reason behind it? Because I don't think any of them are good enough. So why did they bring them so early and then discard them? That's well, what, what, I mean. Because they have to work out if they're good enough? I mean, if they thought they were good enough, they wouldn't be treating them this way, would they? Right? If they thought these were great spinners, they'd be treating them different ways. But they don't. And then they're right. Jack Leach is probably the best of the lot, but he's very one-dimensional. He's very good on pitches that rag sideways against right-handers. Don Best can't land the ball where he wants to land the ball. That's not the, the ultimate skill you want from an off-spinner. Parkinson, they're worried about he's too slow. That's probably a mistake on their point because at a certain point, you probably just need to play him in a bunch of tests to see if that's right. Um, 
It's like if if you look at Ronaldo, I, I can't remember what someone someone in the world uh, actually might have been in the Euros uh, in a ninety second minute or something got up and got a header, and someone and, and the thing was oh what a clutch performance there you know he, uh, you know a bit of class that he popped up at the right time and it's like he'd probably been putting himself in the right position all the way through the game that player right because he was a better player than the people um, around him. And that is more or less exactly what happens in T20 cricket and one-day cricket, right? The game doesn't really change that much at the end, although there are slight things I think that change. I think the, there is probably more – I think it probably suits someone like Dhoni or Pollard more because up until that point, up until the last three or four overs, or last two overs maybe even in a T20 game, but maybe the last four or five overs in a one-day game, you're just batting. Right, so you might be going up against the mass of of the chase, or you might be trying to work out what you think a par total is, but you're just batting. The last five overs um, in the second inning, specifically of a one day game, and the last couple of overs of a T twenty game, suddenly it, there is a lot that you need to factor in. You know, who's at the other end, who, which bowler, where's the wind, where's the the row? All those sorts of things become almost doubly important. So I think at a certain level the smarter players who are a bit more aware are going to be better at the end of that game than a, a player of equal talent who maybe doesn't quite have that extra uh, strategical thinking. So that's probably why we end up with Pollard, Bevan, Dhoni type players uh, because they have a sort of, uh, you know, a supercomputer brain. Compared to someone like A.B. DeVuz, he doesn't need that because he's ending the game. He's going to end the game beforehand. Right, so ABTV is—it's rarer for him to have to worry about all those sorts of things, whereas those sorts of guys, I think it's sort of part of their their mindset. But yeah, as far as clutch goes, we we just don't play enough games. So uh, you know, even if you look at Dhoni's record, um, and most of the players like Dhoni who are really good chasers, um, <laughs> essentially, uh, we just disregard all the games where they fail. And it's a bit the same with Michael Jordan, isn't it? We remember all the game-winning shots, and we forget the fact that. He's not going to hit more than 50% of his game-winning shots because no one could ever hit more than 50% of the game-winning shots because he doesn't hit more than 50% of his shots anyway, right? So we kind of we kind of discount all the times that MS Dhoni batted slow or that Kyron Pollard went out in the 15th over um, because they don't fit the narrative. But I do think that there's probably... I think the last couple of overs of a T20 game and a one-day game specifically are very, very different to other overs um, in the way that you have to think as a batter. Uh, and I suppose another player who would I would say is very good at that sort of thinking is probably someone like Ben Stokes. So they're probably thinking out a couple of balls extra. They're thinking out matchups. They're thinking, okay, well he's this guy's going to have to. I remember talking to Carlos Brathwaite, who probably doesn't have the reputation as that sort of player, but Carlos Brathwaite when he was facing Ben Stokes, he looked at the ground and he's like, okay, so what are they going to have to do here? The short boundary is the offside, right? So they're not going to be able to bowl outside off stump. The long boundaries on the leg side, so they're going to have to come in at me. So they got two options, or th- I think, yeah, I think he was thinking they had three options. One was going to be a ball at the body, um, and, and the other one was going to be Yorker, and the other one was going to be slow balls. So the first ball, if you have a look, Ben Stokes kind of tries to go for the body and just gets it wrong. It doesn't get the length right at all, and Carlos is waiting for that, and he helps it on its way, and he's like, great, now I only have two things to worry about, slow ball and Yorkers. And Ben Stokes didn't bowl a slow ball, and so Carlos was waiting for the other ball. That kind of thinking is, it, and that's not so much just clutch, but that someone who thinks like that is going to be much better at the end of the game, whereas other batters probably more are, in, uh, are less 
thinking cerebrally like that. Um, and then, you know, a, a number number three or a number four batter is probably playing each ball on merit in that, okay, well, when this ball comes here, I'll play this shot. And when this ball comes here, I'll play this shot, but I'll t- treat each ball on its merit. Whereas someone like Callis Brathwaite or Kyron Pollard or MS Stoney is thinking, these are my six hitting zones and I'm only going to get two or three chances here. So the minute this ball is in this area, I'm going to do this. And this is, um, and if I don't hit the six, and I'm going to have to pull out. I'm going to look for a two. Whereas again, that might not be what an opener or or, or another or or a, or a lesser number five or a six player might do. So I do think that there is a slightly different kind of batting in that end period. You know how you get twos, how you manipulate the field, um, and all those sorts of things. But I don't think I'd probably be happy if we started talking about clutch time. Although since you brought it up, there's something that we talked about a lot on Talksport, which is junk stats. So. There's a lot of junk stats in test cricket specifically where players get, you know, blowed up their batting averages by, you know, their team's already ahead by 200 runs um, and they make 100 in the third innings uh, and it means absolutely nothing, right? There's no pressure on them. Uh, You know, they're just going out and knocking the ball around. We have a lot of junk stats in test cricket and first-class cricket that realistically uh, batters and bowlers sometimes. Like if you know if you're bowling, um, if you're bowling to the death, uh, sorry, not the death. If you're bowling at a team who are uh, they're five down and they want to declare in half an hour, and you suddenly pick up five wickets, it's like we well, haven't earned those five wickets. It's just because a bunch of tail enders have tried to hit you for six every ball, right? Uh, and so. There's probably a lot of room for more contextualized stats within cricket, but I don't think uh, clutch time stats would particularly help us at the moment. But it is probably, if we played more T20 cricket and guys like, well, guys like Carter and Pollard are probably quite good at this because they play so much, we could probably start to look for those sorts of players. And then we could think of, there might be other players like that who we can push into those positions who think in, in that sort of similar way. Sort of, I want to say, there's kind of like, What's the best way of putting it? There's kind of a, a bunch of different game theory ways of playing cricket. Um, so you have the sort of Kevin Peterson style game or AB DeVille style game theory, which is, okay, well, this is what their best ball is. And I'm going to hit their best ball over deep backward square leg for six because I can so that they can't bowl their best ball. And then you've got the more game theory type players like Kyron Pollard um, and Emma Stoney who are thinking, okay, this is my boundary area, this is my six area, and this is my two area. I need to be facing four balls of this over minimum because I need to be able to get 10 runs off this, but also need to be at the other end for the next over and all those sorts of extra things. That is a completely different thinking to what AB de Villiers, Kevin Peterson, and Chris Gale need to have. Does that make sense, mate? Yeah, that that, that is uh, fascinating and a great answer. And yeah, a couple of quick things. Uh, you said garbage time, I think, yeah, even in T20s, like a team scores a big total and then lose a bunch of early wickets while chasing. Um, I mean, I don't know. They can either go for some big shots for the net run raid and then some bowlers may earn some wickets there. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard that being described as garbage time analogy. You see, sometimes you see like a number seven come in in a T20 game and like scores like five for 50 and they're chasing 200, right? And the number seven, you know, knocks it around for 30 off 30. Well, that he wouldn't be 30 off 30 <laughs> in a normal game, would he? In a normal game, he'd either be out or he would have tried to have scored at a strike rate of 150, right? And we do, that, that certainly happens. And I think there are metrics. I think Jonas um, from, uh, what's his uh, Twitter handle? Is it White Ball Analytics? Uh, uh, I forget, I should remember that. Uh, but Jonas is, is someone who talks about that in the third innings and test matches. There's, you know, 
there's almost a change. There's almost a possibility to change the playing conditions in Test cricket to make it more interesting. Because at the moment, it's just like, especially now that no one enforces the follow horn, you just have these periods where it's like, oh, okay. Well, both teams are just going to have to, and like a team will be ahead by 550 runs, and it's like, well, the chances of the opposition team winning this are less than one percent, right? So once you get past 400 runs, the chances of winning are, I don't know, two percent. I'd have to have a look at the numbers. So like, why don't we have a pause? In, in the innings here where the other team can now bowl. Once you get to 400 runs, you can't put a higher lead on than 400 runs. Um, and then the other team has to come in and bat regardless, but then you can still go back out and bat again if they do manage to make 500. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? So so you would, so you would, I don't know, you, you, make, you make 400 in the first innings and you bowl out the other team for 200. You go out and score two for 200 and then you've almost got an automatic pause in your innings and then you start bowling again. That would actually, again, would speed the game up because we know that the third innings can be, you know, so, uh, some, the third innings is so rarely important unless it's a close game. Um, you know, more often than not, it's just like either a team is trying to get enough runs that they're like 20 runs ahead to make the team bat in the fourth innings or you've got a team just knocking around two for 200 quickly um, so they can get in and bowl again. So there's lots of dead parts of cricket stats, which is very fair. Um, I, I don't know if you know, have you ever heard of um, declaration bowling? Um, like bringing on bad bowlers to enforce the declaration or like dangerous bowlers? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, bad bowls. So it's not something that happens very often in test cricket, but it's something that happens a lot in first-class cricket because essentially, because especially in the old days of English first-class cricket when you had three days, you would bring bowlers on specifically to bowl those overs of declaration overs so that you could um, so you could say to them, you, you'd almost do a plan with the opposition and go, okay, what's you know, this game's fairly even at, the, at this stage, but if we keep playing at this pace, it's going to be a draw. What do you guys want to get to and how much overs do you want to... You know, and and the opposition captain would be like, well, we want to get three. If we get three hundred and fifty runs in front with eighty overs, we're willing to make that declaration. It's like, okay, great. Well, let's get that out as quickly as we as we can here. We're going to bring on our bum bowlers. Like that is part of the game. <laughs> um, as is, I mean, you know, um, sometimes just using a bunch of part timers because you know, what, what did Anderson bowl ten overs in the third innings the other day? Eleven overs in the third innings in the Ashes Test. It's like, but that's not. England, you know, using they use Dawood Milan, right? It's like um, it's it's nonsense that he gets a wicket in that situation. He shouldn't even be bowling. So uh, we certainly have scope for that in cricket. But thanks for your question, mate. Uh, Jamie hasn't been able to ask it in the thing. But are England now playing for the sins of mismanagement seven eight years ago? Moeen Butler best overall mismanaged, in my opinion. We now have a missing generation of veteran players. Eight years ago. Uh, so eight years ago, what year are we in? 2022, so 2014. No. I think you can make a fair claim that all of them have been mismanaged, but I think most of them have probably been mismanaged more of recent times than they were beforehand. Moen's probably the one that was completely screwed over. It, like We never saw the best of his batting because he never got to bat in any position for long enough. And also when he batted at seven and eight, I think he played like he thought a seven and eight should play rather than just batting as the Moeen Ali, uh, you know, who was a very good first-class batter. Bairstow, I think, was really screwed over in the Butler era. I know that obviously some of his handling beforehand was tricky, but I really think it was the Butler era that screwed him. And Butler was screwed over. He's brought in as a specialist batter. Then he was told he wasn't good enough to be the wicketkeeper. Then he was the wicketkeeper. Then he had to bat. I think he was batting at five at one stage, way too high for his skills. But I think all this comes back to essentially England hasn't had a very strong team since 13-14. They've had 
better lineups than this, and they've—I was going to say—they've had worse lineups than this. They might not have had many worse lineups than this, but they've had better lineups than this. They've had lineups roughly this this level. But I don't think that specifically the problem is um, the treatment of the players. I think the treatment of the players has come from the fact that if you look at those three guys, they're all flawed players at this level. You're not talking, but none of them is Matt Pryor. You know, um, none of them is Ravi Jadeja. They're not really, really top-level obvious players. They're players with flaws. And when and if you think about this, I would make a really strong argument here, Jamie, that all three of those guys probably should have bat, uh, batted at number seven if, if you were being perfect. And you would have said, you're batting at seven for the next 30 test matches. But they couldn't do that because they were trying to fit all three of them in. And also because they didn't have strong enough batting, especially at the top of the order, they then were trying to change the guys, you know, oh, maybe Bairstow can bat at three. No, maybe Butler can bat at four. No, maybe Moen can, no, stop. All right. But that was all because of the flaws within the team. So you're using imperfect players to try and overcome flaws that I don't think they could have overcome anyway. Uh, but thanks for your question. Sorry that you couldn't ask it. This, uh, this app can be very weird sometimes with people. Sam, Sam, you there? Yeah, hi, Jerry. How you doing? What's your question, mate? So a lot's been made about England's batting and the Ashes, and I kind of yeah. want to talk about their bowling, especially like fast bowling. Now, I know Archer was earmarked as the weapon England were going to use for the Ashes, and he was injured and so was stone. But these injuries happened when they toured India, so around February time. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, there is a lack of succession planning, or not succession planning, just planning for the kind of attack that would be required to succeed in Australia? Because clearly, we saw in the last test that an attack with Rod Anderson was particularly good. So do you think there's a problem there, or do you think it's just the batting and it's a bad better? I'm going to throw it back to you, Sam. Can you tell me who the replacement for Joffre Archer is in world cricket, let alone in English cricket? Do you know what I mean? Like, you can have any succession plan you want, can't you? It doesn't matter if Joffre is out. And I think that's the that's the thing. I don't think England's planning has been wrong, specifically. I think they maybe didn't weren't as flexible with it as they should have been when things went pear-shaped, especially when they knew they didn't have Joffre and Stone. Because if Joffre and Stone were their backbone um, of that, then they either had to bring Saqib in, although I don't think he's quite that kind of bowler, but at least a bowler of similar kind of uh, level, and, and gone with that. But realistically, I don't know how they would have ever planned for not having Joffre. Like Joffre was probably the plan that they had. And when it comes down to it, when when he hasn't been available, um, I think that has caused the, the major problems. Uh, I don't think you can replace players like that. Fair enough. Yeah, I wasn't entirely sure about if there's any player with like high pace and bounce in the county system. So. Well, there is. There's there's Mark Wood, Ollie Stone and Joffre Archer. Okay. Uh, Saki Mahmood is a different kind of bowler. I think he's almost like a slightly slower version of Pat Cummins. Very good bowler, but probably not exactly what their plan was. But again, that sort of shows the, the you know, did they need Overton? Did they need Overton, Broad and Robinson when they are all very high-release bowlers of a similar pace when they probably could have had, when Jofra wasn't playing, um, and they had Mark Wood, would and and they didn't have Ollie Stone. Would Sakib be a better option there than Overton? I think that's fair, but I don't think they're losing the Ashes because of their bowling. I think had their fielders taken any catches over the first three innings, I think their bowling we would be talking about their bowling way differently than we are now. Uh, and that is that's how these things work, right? It's like the bowlers pr- produced probably enough chances to 
to put Australia under pressure. The fielders didn't take them. And the opposite um, happened for, for Australia, that every single chance that the Australian bowlers uh, made was taken. Sometimes that is the difference. I still think the Australian bowling attack is better. I still think England made a lot of mistakes, but I don't think we'd be focusing on the bowling anywhere near as much as we are if England had taken their catches. And having said that, I still think England would probably be 2 nil down. Fair enough. Cheers, mate. I think this is Saud, but I'm not sure if it's him or someone else. Are you there? Hi, it's Farid Saud, yeah. Yeah, how you doing, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. <laughs> so... As an England cricket fan, look, I can see that no matter what, over the next few years, England's going to be quite successful in the white ball cricket um, because there is enough backup players, you know, with this spot announcement for the uh, upcoming West Indies series, etc. And what we've seen in the Pakistan series that happened last year, I think, mm. or this year. Anyway, so um, if you were, I don't know, chief selector or as you like to the Emperor King of England cricket, let's just say, and you could hit the re- reset button on the test side of things, what would be the sort of lineup and who, what would you do? I mean, what sort of route me who would you pick from this? I mean, from the county, from who is playing? Because, yeah, where, where would you go if you to replace some of these players? I mean, or because some of them are coming to the sort of twilight, I'd say, and it hasn't been working anyway. I don't think there's an obvious answer. Right, I think Ed Smith made some cataclysmic mistakes with this team. And the, the Joss Butler one, you can read my article, and I'll, I'll do a big video on that shortly as well. Um, I think that was a horrible mistake and caused problems that they didn't need to cause. But realistically, I don't know how you fix their batting. Bowling's not a problem. All-rounders, certainly not a problem. Wicketkeepers, probably not a problem, although they turned them into a problem, weirdly. But... I don't know how you fix their batting. Uh, I don't know if you were on at the start, but we had a Patreon question uh, from Nort where he was talking about Jake Libby, Joe Clark, and who's the other guy? Oh, Liam Livingston. And, like, he's like, you know, these guys should be in the Ashes squad. And it's like, but none of them average over 40, right? And I, I remember when James Taylor came through. So I moved to the UK and James Taylor was quite young and I watched him and I was like, this is a guy who could play for 10 or 15 years and average 45 plus. He is an absolute gun talent. I don't remember the last time I watched a first-class English cricketer and thought anything like that. Taylor, James Taylor and Joe Root were the last two times I went, I can't see how this guy can go wrong. Now, obviously, James Taylor, I still think he would have gone on to be a good cricketer, but obviously his health concerns came in. Uh, Australia might have a similar thing with Will Pekoski. Sometimes these things just happen. Uh, Joe Root was obvious. Where, where I just don't see the others. I, I go and watch county cricket, and I, you know, sometimes watch the Lions tour. Even when I watch the under 19s I just don't see guys who are going to come in and average over forty in, in Test match cricket. And so I don't know how you overcome that. Being being honest, you know, I, I know that there were serious. Yeah, I don't know. There were serious and and and, and not so serious uh, calls for Chris Wokes to bat at three. I think if Chris Wokes batted at three, he'd average about fifteen, mind you. But I can see why people thought that, right? You know, if I'm Patan style, um, you know, if you can't find an opener, um, cram one into the top of the order, someone who can bat um, a little bit. But realistically, I just don't. I don't see it. Um, uh, I don't watch I don't watch county cricket as closely as someone like George uh, Dobell or you know some of the other um, you know um, uh, guys uh, guys who cover the English cricket team. But I, I saw Zach Crawley, and I saw him at Beckenham, and I saw him make runs, and I remember being called up by people going, "What do you think of Zach Crawley?" And I was like, "It looks okay." <laughs> like 
You know? It's like, I remember seeing, I remember watching about an hour of Will Pekoski about around the same time, maybe even slightly before uh, Zach Crawley, uh, Crawley, sorry. And I remember comparing the two to someone in English cricket, you know, someone, someone who has a say um, in, 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 you know, how things go. And I said, like, Will Pekoski looks three times better than Zach Crawley. And Will Pekoski's made runs. Like, what are we even doing here? If we're, if we're going to give a 20, uh, at that stage, I think Zach was still 20, a 20-year-old who's never made any runs, and you're going to bat him, what, first drop or open? Are you guys mad? Right? And, and, and the answer back was, there's no one else. And they're kind of right. I remember, who's the, who's the guy from Essex came through, uh, was open the batting, uh, was it Frost? Brown? Might be Brown. At Essex came through, and I was like, this guy looks like he could, and then he did, disappeared. Joe Clark, I saw him early on. I saw, I could see how this disappeared. Um, uh, Nick Gubbins. I remember, again, people called me, have you seen Nick Gubbins? I'm like, yeah, he bats with an open face. What do we think is going to happen in a test match? Right? It's, it's extra pace. They're just going to find that, that, and they're going to slice it all day with a bunch of fielders there. Um, I would love to say that there's an easy answer to all this, but I don't think there is. I, you know, I, I think, as I said, I think Ed Smith made some monumental mistakes with that team. But I can understand why he basically went to Joe Denley, um, Rory Burns, and um, and Dom Sibley. And did, well, certainly as a selector, and just went, as long as these guys can get to about, you know, 70, 80, 90 balls in innings, um, we might be okay here because we can then get to our middle order. Since then, the middle order's got worse. Uh, Best is not there anymore, right? So, um, uh, and, and Ollie Pope has regressed. So I don't know what you do. I'll be, I'll be really, really honest. If it was my job, hopefully I'd have more ideas and I'd be uh, going off. And I think there are probably, I think if it was me right at the moment, I'd be looking for more revolutionary methods. But I really think the structure is the bigger problem, not the talent right at the moment. But but who knows? I could be wrong. But thanks for your question, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Isn't that Connor just put one in? Yeah, where is it? I'm mystified how England think the players who failed this year and the year before are the men to resurrect the Ashes campaign. As I just said, Connor, yes. there's no one out there. I, I think people think that there's like a bunch of guys out there who are making lots of runs in county cricket. The best bowlers in county cricket are realistically playing for England. And they've gone through the best bat- batters in county cricket. They've gone through younger guys like Crawley. They've gone through guys like Vince who look pretty. They've gone through guys like Milan and Denley, hoping that one of them come off. Uh, you know, maybe Milan will, but honestly, I think Milan's had a bunch of luck and he's due probably a couple of failures here and everyone will f- forget about it. He pl- plays seam bowling with an angle blade and I don't think he's particularly good against offspin. I don't think he can have a long-term career where he averages over 35 in test cricket. So yeah, there's that. Last one, Praveen. Here it is, last question. Take it home. Clutch time. Hey, uh, So I was actually to England fans uh, being very unhappy, quite justifiably, about what's going on in Australia and India, mm-hmm. also touring South Africa right now. And I found something really interesting that England seem to be the only team that have got some measure of success against South Africa in South Africa. And yeah, yeah. Not Australia, not India, not nobody oh, else. Australia's had a lot of success in South Africa. There was one point where it actually looked like Australia was a better team in South Africa and South Africa was a better team in Australia. So, no, no, I think I think you're wrong there. Go back through the records. I think Australia has been very good in South Africa. All right, fair enough. I think I, I just went back to England and I saw that in the last four tours that England did in mm-hmm. South Africa, I think they won three of them and they drew one of them. And I'm wondering, is there something about South Africa that just makes England's batting or bowling just more 
penetrator more gives them an advantage in some way. Well, the last tour they were better, so that helps. You know, if you turn up and you're the better team, uh, and you know South Africa was going through a crisis, it was probably just before I think Rabada and uh, not Rabada, uh, Nokia just started coming through. So the bowling attack hadn't quite come together. Vernon Philander was should probably shouldn't have played in that series. He was probably past his best. Uh, he probably he just looked tired to me. I, he walked off of Johannesburg. They said he had an injury. I think he just went. I think I've done. I've done enough here, or I can't do any more. Trying to think. I think they were trying a bunch of young batters as well. Uh, they were going through a bit of a uh, a thing there uh, with their batting lineup, which in some ways has been very similar to England. Uh, I do think that South Africa is probably a combination of Australia and England conditions. Uh, so they probably do favour the the England players. I'd have to go back to the series. There's a couple of series where they hung on with draws. I don't know if that came up in your in, in your in your um, uh, numbers. Also, I don't think South Africa's been a particularly strong team since Callis left. So when was that? 13-14. So I don't know how many times England have played over there since 13-14. And before that period, England were an outstanding team. You know, from, what, 2009 to 2013, they were the best team in the world. So I think that, you know, that they ran into one weak South African team. Um, They were a really good team probably at least once when they toured, maybe even twice when they toured. Um, Callis leaving in 2013 was obviously, uh, yeah, I think he retired at the end of 2013, didn't he? Uh, he's unreplaceable and they really haven't been the same side since then because they, they've lost their big advantage, which is having an extra frontline batter or bowler in the team. And I do think the conditions, I think as a general rule, suit England more than Australia does. So England are very good. Well, traditionally in New Zealand, slightly less so of recent times, but traditionally are very good uh, in New Zealand um, and in South Africa and probably traditionally not quite as good in New- in Australia. And that's probably because Australia is a slightly different kind of bowling um, thing. It doesn't quite suit the traditional seamers that England have um, as much, whereas um, in New Zealand and in South Africa there's a little bit more, you know, it, you, you don't get many Vernon Philander-type bowlers in Australia you get a lot more Josh Hazelwood, Glenn McGrath type bowlers. So you generally need to be a lot taller or a lot faster. Whereas the kind of England bowlers that we have are probably more guys who are more towards that Vernon Philander mould, if not exactly the same kind of bowler. So I think that might have a part of it. But I think some of it's just fluke, man. As I said, I think if you go back through it, um, Australia had an outstanding record in South Africa for a very, very long time. Um Obviously, you know, they, the, the last tour, um, some things happened. Um, but that wasn't a particularly strong Australian team probably at that point anyway, even with Smith and Warner. Uh, and uh, it's probably as a team has come together a lot more since that, since that part. Um, and it's a slightly better team, although they still can't bat. But, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with that sort of stuff. But uh, I do think England should be more suited to South Africa. You, you get pitches in South Africa that are actually quite slow. Um, and you get pitches that are quite English. You don't really get those kinds of pitches at all in Australia. So it's a very different environment, even if they both have a couple of pitches that are very similar to each other. Uh, you know, the Wanderers could basically be an Australian wicket, I would think. Make sense? Yeah. Thank you so much, Janet. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks to the Patreons. Uh, as I said, you can go support us on Patreon. If you want to support our, our quest for another podcast, you can do so there. Also, you know, Manscaped, put in the code REDINCA and you get this 20% off. But thanks to everyone who supported it. I don't know when we started the Wagon Wheels. It must have been about two or three months ago, three or four months ago. 
And I wasn't sure if they'd work. I wasn't sure if people would really like them. Um, but so far, the feedback's been incredible. So we're going to keep them up. Obviously, we'd eventually like to be able to record them and produce them all in sort of real time. So we're on Green Room at the moment. We did flirt with Clubhouse, but it seems like Clubhouse is dead. But eventually, we'll probably take them over to maybe to make them more a Twitter Spaces type thing or a YouTube thing, if we could. But huge thanks to everyone who supported us this year. And we'll be back next week for another one. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.